91.7 WVXU is proud to support this and other locally produced podcasts through its podcast network. For an easy-to-navigate curated list of some of the best local and national podcasts, visit Podcast Central at wvxu.org slash podcast central. Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 182 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com. We always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the reading room on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building is library member and local actor Landon Hawkins. Recently, Landon was in a performance of Christopher Logue's All Day Permanent Red at the Mercantile Library. And before that, we heard him perform excerpts from Logue's Kings on episode 51 of the 12th story. Today, Landon is going to read selections from several books we've recently acquired at the Mercantile. We've got a mix of poetry and fiction, recently published in older work, by authors of different times and backgrounds who wrote in English, Spanish, Urdu, Greek, and Italian. What they have in common is that they are all good and relatively new to the Mercantile collection. And we bought these books as part of a larger project here at the library to expand our collections of poetry, translations, and work published by small or at least independent presses. We're going to start with an excerpt from the short novel Kirbet Kizay by the Israeli author S. Yazar, translated by Nicholas DeLong and Yaakob Dweck. This novel concerns the destruction of an Arab village during the 1948 Israeli War of Independence, which is known to Palestinians as the Nakba, or catastrophe. Landon is going to read the novel's opening pages. True. It all happened a long time ago, but it has haunted me ever since. I sought to drown it out with the din of passing time, to diminish its value, to blunt, it, blunt its edge with the rush of daily life. And I even occasionally managed a sober shrug, managed to see that the whole thing had not been so bad after all, congratulating myself on my patience, which is, of course, the brother of true wisdom. But sometimes I would shake myself again, astonished at how easy it had been to be seduced, to be knowingly led astray and join the great general mass of liars, that mass compounded of crass ignorance, utilitarian indifference, and shameless self-interest, and exchange a single great truth for the cynical shrug of a hardened sinner. I saw that I could no longer hold back, and although I hadn't made up my mind where it would end, it seemed to me that, in any case, instead of saying silent, I should, rather, start telling the story. One option is to tell the story in order, beginning with one clear day, one clear winter's day, and describing in detail the departure and the journey, when the dirt paths were moistened by the earlier rain 
and the cactus hedges surrounding the citrus groves were burned by the sun and moist. Their feet, as of old, licked by flocks of dense, damp, dark green nettles. As the noonday gradually advanced, a pleasant, unhurried noonday, which moved on as usual and turned into a darkening twilight chill when it was all over, finished, done. Another and possibly better option, however, would be to begin differently and to mention straight away what had been the purpose of that entire day from the start. Operational order number such and such, on such and such day of the month, in the margin of which, in the final section that was simply entitled Miscellaneous, it said, in a short line and a half, that although the mission must be executed decisively and precisely, whatever happened, no violent outbursts or disorderly conduct, it said, would be permitted, which only indicated straight away that there was something amiss, that anything was possible and even planned and foreseen, and that one couldn't evaluate this straightforward final clause before returning to the opening, and also scanning the noteworthy clause entitled Information, which immediately warned of the mounting danger of infiltrators, terrorist cells, and, in a wonderful turn of phrase, operatives dispatched on hostile missions. But also the subsequent and even more noteworthy clause, which explicitly stated, assemble the inhabitants of the area extending from point X, see attached map, to point Y, see same map, load them onto transports, and convey them across our lines, blow up the stone houses, and burn the huts, detain the youths and the suspects, and clear the area of hostile forces, and so on and so forth. So that it was now obvious how many good and honest hopes were being invested in those who were being sent out to implement all this burn, blow up, imprison, load, convey. Who would burn, blow up, imprison, load, and convey with such courtesy and with a restraint born of true culture. And this would be a sign of a wind of change, of decent upbringing, and perhaps even of the Jewish soul, the great Jewish soul. And so it happened as we set out that clear, splendid winter morning, cheerfully making our way, showered, well-fed, and smartly turned out. And so, in the light breeze, we got out at a certain point close to a village that wasn't yet visible, and our company was dispatched to the flank, while some of the others were to cover the rear, and the rest were to enter the village. And as usual, there was nothing better than being in the flanking company, which was moving off through unknown territory, setting out into the washed, cleansed existence of the fields, the pure, pellucid air, among plantations partly plowed from before the rage, and partly covered with weeds and grass from the days of rage. And it was so pleasant to slosh around on the muddy paths, slippery with puddles and fresh mire, until your youth, albeit no longer so very youthful, burst forth with renewed vigor. Even carrying the mission case, which cut into your hand, might be transformed now and resemble nothing more than something or other that belonged to a group of people walking, let's say, to work. Or even, for example, a flock of chirping sparrow-like urchins. There we were, sloshing, talking and chattering, joking and singing, not noisily but cheerfully, 
and it was clear. There was to be no battle for us today, and if anyone happened to feel apprehensive, this had nothing to do with us. God help him. Today, we were going on an outing. We reached a hill where we were crouched under a cactus hedge, and we were ready to eat something when the man, one Moisha, the company commander, gathered us together and briefed us about the situation, the lay of the land, and the objective, from which it transpired that the few houses on the lower slope of another hill were some Kerbet Kaze or another, and all the surrounding crops and fields belonged to that village whose abundant water, good soil, and celebrated husbandry had gained a reputation almost equal to that of its inhabitants, who were, they said, a band of ruffians, who gave succor to the enemy, and were ready for any mischief, should the opportunity only arise, or, for example, should they happen to encounter any Jews, you could be sure that they would wipe them out at once. Such was their nature, and such were their ways. And when we fixed our sight upon those few houses on the flanks of that unobtrusive hill, from which we were separated by the plantations, the well-tended gardens, and a scattering of wells, we saw that this whole Kerbet Kazer presented no problem, truly did not justify any further explanation. On the other hand, there were some trees, sycamores apparently, here and there, so venerable and tranquil that they seemed to be no longer part of the vegetation, but of the inanimate realm. And then someone came back with some oranges, and we ate oranges. Then we set off down the slimy gray furrows, which they hadn't had time to sow. We pushed open a big wooden gate set in a mud wall and walked up a narrow path between hedges of prickly pears spread with dung and chilly dampness, where dead nettles, fumarias, and flowerless, fleshy plants twined in profusion and sprawled under their own damp, drab weight, or hid coyly in the recesses of the cactus hedge, and we climbed up the next hill. From here, the village lay spread out before us. We took our positions, set up the machine gun, and were ready to start. And when the one who was bent over his equipment, listening and speaking into the wireless receiver in a ceremonial sing-song, informed us that there was still a wait until zero hour, we each sought and found a dry place to sit or stretch out and wait quietly for things to begin. No one knows how to wait like soldiers. There is no time or place that soldiers are not waiting and waiting. Waiting in dug-in positions on the high ground waiting for an attack, waiting to move on, waiting in a ceasefire. There is the ruthlessly long waiting, the nervous, anxious waiting, and there is also the tedious waiting that consumes and burns everything without fire or smoke or purpose or anything. You find yourself a place, you lie down in it, and you wait. Where have we not lain down? That was from Kirbet Kizeh by S. Yazar. Next, we're going to hear the first story in a book called Whatever Happened to Interracial Love? This book is a collection of stories never before published and recently discovered by the African-American writer Kathleen Collins. During her life, Collins was known as a filmmaker, an academic, a civil rights activist, and playwright, 
Um, she's probably best known for her film Losing Ground. She's criminally underknown as a writer of fiction, and um, this collection is still relatively new, and hopefully will do something to make her work uh, reach a wider audience. Landon is going to read to us the first short piece in this book, and it's called Exteriors. Okay. It's a six-floor walk-up, three rooms in the front, bathtub in the kitchen, roaches on the walls, a cubbyhole of a john with a stained glass window. The light? They've got light up the butt. It's the tallest building on the block facing nothing but rooftops and sun. Okay. Let's light it for night. I want a spot on that big double bed that takes up most of the room and a little one on the burlap night table. Okay, now light that work table with all those notebooks and papers and stuff. Good. And put a spot on those pillows made up to look like a couch. Good. Now, let's have a nice soft gel on the young man composing his poems or reading at his work table. And another soft one for the young woman standing by the stove killing roaches. Okay. Now, backlight the two of them. Asleep in the big double bed with that blue and white comfort them over them. Nice touch. Okay. Now, while they're asleep, put a spot on the young woman smiling in that photograph taken on the roof of the building and on the young man smoking a pipe in that photograph taken in the black rocking chair. And be sure to light the two of them hugging each other in that photograph taken in the park around the corner. Good. Now backlight the young woman as she lifts that enamel counter covering the bathtub and put a little light on him undressing her and a nice soft dark on the two of them nude in the doorway. Nice touch. Now dim the light. He's picking at her and teasing her. No, take it way down. She looks too anxious and sad. Keep it down. He looks too restless and angry. Down some more. She's just trying to please him. They can stay down. She's just waiting at the window. No, on second thought, kill it. He won't come in before morning. Okay, now find a nice low level while they're lying without speaking. No, kill it. There's too much silence and pain. Now fog it slightly when he comes back in the evening and keep it dim while they sit on the bed. Now how about a nice blue gel when he tells her it's over? Good. Now go for a little fog while she tries not to cry. Good. Now take it up on him a little while he watches her coldly. Then up on her when she asks him to stay. Nice. Now down a bit while it settles between them. And keep it down while he watches her. Just watches her. Then fade him to black. And leave her in the shadow. While she looks for the feelings that lit up the room. That was Exteriors by Kathleen Collins. Next we're going to hear a few poems by the Argentine poet Alejandra Pizarnik. Pizarnik died in her mid-30s in 1972. She is really well known in Spanish-speaking world 
is a great poet, um, highly regarded and very influential in Latin America. She is not so well known in English, and um, Yvette Siegert has translated work from the middle of her career and later parts of her career, as well as several posthumous verses, in a book called Extracting the Stone of Madness. This book is also fairly recent and is an important publication in English. Um, Landon will name each poem before he reads them. And these are four short lyrics. Pizarnik also wrote several longer sustained prose poems. Um, so it's really a, a dynamic book with a lot of different um, sounds and uh, styles, um, but a singular vision. Revelations. At night, at your side, words become clues, keys. The desire to die is king. May your body always be a beloved space for revelations. Party. I have laid out my orphanhood on the table like a map. I have sketched the directions to my home in the wind. Visitors arrive, but do not find me. The ones I wait for do not exist. And I have drunk furious liquors to change their faces into angels, into empty glasses. Death Lantern. The absent figures are sighing, and the night is thick. The night is the color of the eyelids of the dead. All night long I make the night. All night long I write. Word by word, I am writing the night. Summer goodbyes. The soft rumor of spreading weeds. The sound of things ruined by the wind. They come to me as if I were the heart of all that exists. I would like to be dead. And also to go inside another heart. Alejandra Pizarnik, translated by Yvette Siegert from Extracting the Stone of Madness. The Rebel Silhouette is a book of selected poems by the Urdu language poet Fez, translated by the Kashmiri American poet Aha Shahid Ali. Last night. At night, my lost memory of you returned. And I was like the empty field where springtime, without being noticed, is bringing flowers. I was like the desert over which the breeze moves gently, with great care. I was like the dying patient who, for no reason, smiles. Solitude. Someone finally is here. No, unhappy heart, no one, just a passerby on his way. The night is surrendered to clouds of scattered stars. 
the lamps in the halls waver. Having listened with longing for steps, the roads too are asleep. A strange dust has buried every footprint. Blow out the lamps. Break the glasses. Erase all memory of wine. Heart, bolt forever your sleepless doors. Tell every dream that knocks to go away. No one, now no one, will ever return. Guzzle. In the sun's last embers, the evening star burns to ash. Night draws its curtains, separating lovers. Won't someone cry out, protest heaven's tyranny? An era has passed, and time is still stranded, its caravan of day and night lost. Nostalgia for friends and wine, to crush that sorrow will allow memory nothing, neither the moon nor the rain. Once again the breeze knocks on the prison door. It whispers, don't give up. Wait a little. Dawn is near. That was three poems by Fez, the great Pakistani 20th century poet, from a book called The Rebel Silhouette, translated by Aha Shahid Ali, also a great poet in his own right. We're now going to hear work by a living poet, in contrast to the four writers we've heard from previously. Um, Alice Oswald is a British poet whose recent book is called Falling Awake, and we're going to hear two poems from this collection. Flies. This is the day the flies fall awake mid-sentence and lie stunned on the windowsill, shaking with speeches. Only it isn't speech. It is trembling sections of puzzlement, which break off suddenly, as if the questioner had been shot. This is one of those wordy days, when they drop from their winter quarters in the curtains, and sizzle as they fall, feeling like old cigarette butts called back to life blown from the surface of some charred world. And somehow, their wings, which are little more than flakes of dead skin, have carried them to this blackened, disembodied question. What dirt shall we visit today? What dirt shall we revisit? They lift their faces to the past and walk about a bit trying out their broken thought machines, coming back with their used-up words. There is such a horrible, trapped buzzing wherever we fly. It's going to be impossible to think clearly now until next winter. What should we? What dirt should we? Swan. A rotted swan is hurrying away from the plane crash mess of her wings. One here, one there. Getting panicky up out of her clothes. 
and mid-splash, looking down again at what a horrible plastic mold of herself, split-second climbing out of her own cockpit. And lifting away again, and bending back for another look, thinking strange, strange. What are those two white clips that connected my strength to its floatings? And lifting away again, and bending back for another look, at the clean china serving dish of a breastbone, and how thickly the symmetrical quill points were threaded in backwards through the leather underdress of the heart, saying, strange, strange. It's not as if such fastenings could ever contain the regular yearning wingbeat of my evenings, and that surely can't be my own black feet lying poised in their slippers. What a waste of detail. What a heaviness inside each feather. And leaving her life and all its tools with their rusty juices trickling back to the river. She is lifting away. She is taking a last look, thinking, quick, quick, say something to the frozen cloud of the head before it thaws whose one dead eye is a growing cone of twilight in the middle of winter. It is snowing there, and the bride has just set out to walk her wedding. But how can she reach the little black-lit church? It is so cold. The bells like iron angels, hung from one note, keep ringing and ringing. Alice Oswald, two poems from Falling Awake, her most recent collection. We're now going to hear a few poems by Konstantin Kavafi, Greek language Alexandrian poet, translated by Daniel Mendelssohn, who is a well-known scholar of the classical Greek world, and an essayist and a memoirist. The God Abandons Antony. When suddenly at midnight there comes the sound of an invisible procession passing by, with exquisite music playing, with voices raised, your good fortune, which now gives way, all your efforts ill start outcome, the plans you made for life, which turned out wrong, don't mourn them uselessly. Like one who's long prepared, like someone brave, bid farewell to her, to Alexandria, who is leaving. Above all, do not fool yourself. Don't say that it was a dream, that your ears deceived you. Don't stoop to futile hopes like these. Like one who's long prepared, like someone brave, as befits a man who's been blessed with a city like this, Go without faltering toward the window and listen with deep emotion, but not with the entreaties and the whining of a coward to the sounds, a final entertainment to the exquisite instruments of that initiate crew, and bid farewell to her, to Alexandria, whom you were losing. Theodotus, 
If you are among the truly elect, watch how you achieve your predominance. However much you're glorified, however much your accomplishments in Italy and Thessaly are blazoned far and wide by governments, however many honorary decrees are bestowed on you in Rome by your admirers, neither your elation nor your triumph will endure, nor will you feel superior. Superior how? When, in Alexandria, Theodotus brings you upon a charger that's been stained with blood, poor, wretched Pompey's head. And do not take it for granted that in your life, restricted, regimented, and mundane, such spectacular and terrifying things don't exist. Maybe at this very moment, into some neighbor's nicely tidied house there comes invisible and material Theodotus bringing one such terrifying head King Demetrius not like a king but like an actor he exchanged his showy robe of state for a dark cloak and in secret stole away Plutarch, Life of Demetrius. When the Macedonians deserted him and made it clear that it was Pyrrhus they preferred, King Demetrius, who had a noble soul, did not, so they said, behave at all like a king. He went and cast off his golden clothes and flung off his shoes of richest purple. In simple clothes, he dressed himself quickly and left, doing just as an actor does, who, when the performance is over, changes his attire and departs. Three poems by Constantine Kavafi, translated by Daniel Mendelssohn. Kavafi, the great poet of history, and Eros, civil servant who worked in the third circle of irrigation. That's not a joke. He really did. Last, we're going to hear a poem by Giacomo Leopardi, translated by Jonathan Galassi, who is a poet himself and publisher and president of Ferrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Blandin is going to read first the Italian original and then the English. L'infinito. Sempre caro mi fu, quest'ermo cole, e questa siepe, che da tanta parte dell'ottimo orizzonte il guardo esclude. Ma sarendo e mirando, in terminati spazi di là da quella, e sovrumani silenzi, e profondissima quiete, Io nel pensier mi fingo, ove per poco il cor non si spaura, e come il vento o lo stormir tra questa piante, io quello infinito silenzio a questa voce vo comparando, e mi sovien l'eterno, e le morte stagioni, e la presente è viva. Era suon di lei. Così tra questa 
immensità s'annega il pensier mio e il naufragarme dolce in questo mare. Infinity. This lonely hill was always dear to me, and this hedgerow, which cuts off the view of so much of the last horizon. But sitting here and gazing, I can see beyond, in my mind's eye, unending spaces and superhuman silences and depthless calm to what I feel is almost fear. And when I hear the wind stir in these branches, I begin comparing that endless stillness with this noise, and the eternal comes to mind, and the dead seasons, and the present living one, and how it sounds. So my mind sinks in this immensity, and foundering is sweet in such a sea. That was Giacomo Leopardi from Canti, translated by Jonathan Galassi. Thank you for joining us today on The 12th Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. Today's podcast was directed by me, Adam Kosan, and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guest, Landon Hawkins. The 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our coming events. Have a great week.